0: Welcome to Embargo, the podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I'm here, as always, with my friend, colleague, and co-host, Mr. Timothy O'Toole. What is up, Tim?
1: What is up, Brian? It is officially summer now.
0: It is, even though we're two weeks shy of the, uh, the actual start. It is above 90 degrees here in Washington, D.C. We're, where, we're calling
1: it. We're calling it. It may not be official, yeah. but it's official.
0: We're grateful because it was uh, we were wearing parkas and uh, gloves and hats on uh, Memorial Day weekend, so we're happy for the the warm weather. We will take it. Um, welcome everybody to Embargoed. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, shout out and appreciation to everybody who weighed in. We got a lot of notes after the Nord Stream two episode a couple weeks ago. Really appreciate that. Appreciate all the feedback. Please keep it coming. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna get right to it today. We have. Um, of one big ticket item and a few things to look forward to. And then a couple of small things to, to wrap us up here uh, before we get going. Of course we are not uh, giving legal advice. We are not discussing confidential information to the extent you disagree with anything you hear today. Blame me, blame Tim. No one else is to blame. Uh, and if you like the pod, please subscribe. You can find us anywhere you get your podcast content. Please uh, leave us a rating. Hopefully a five-star rating, spread the word. Uh, and uh, that is it. We will uh, we'll be back. We're taking an extra week off before the next episode. It will be three week uh, between episodes due to some early summer vacation plans uh, on behalf of your your humble hosts uh, who desperately need to get out of the Washington D.C. area. <laughs> and so uh, we'll be back late in June, perhaps with some guests. We think uh, that's still in the works, but that's that's coming next time. But for this time. Let me just run through the roadmap and we'll jump right in. So number one for this week uh, is going to be the new executive order that was just issued uh, regarding uh, investments in publicly traded securities of Chinese military companies, the new executive order that was just issued last week. Perhaps bringing an end to uh, many of the different strands that we've been tracking for the past several months, because this is certainly trying to clean things up uh, in, in what was kind of a messy program and a messy executive order uh 13959 so we'll we'll spend a bit of time on that we're then going to turn to the new directive that was issued by the white house last week regarding anti-corruption and we're going to talk about that a little bit and think think forward to what that could mean especially in the sanctions context and then uh the final full topic is going to be the new the release just last week of the burma sanctions reg- regulations and and really then just kind of checking in on Burma and, and some thoughts there we haven't we haven't talked about Burma in a in a few episodes and so we want to kind of circle back there've been a couple of noteworthy developments there a couple of strange developments there quite frankly that we want to reflect on uh, and so that's really going to be the show for today and then in the lightning round we're going to do our obligatory Obligatory check in with JCPOA 2.0 because we can't have an episode goodbye without talking about that. But that'll be a quick one, I think. We're going to talk about uh, the situation going on in the Middle East uh, with Israel and Palestine, and specifically with uh, Hamas and a source of funding for Hamas that was featured recently in, in the mainstream news media. And then finally, we're going to talk about. The Export Control uh, Export Control Reform Act and a report that just came out criticizing implementation there with regard to um, uh, foundational and emerging technologies, and so we're going to talk about that very quickly. And so that's going to be our show for today. And then, um, and, and we will uh, take a pause. We'll hold our breath. Perhaps we will have big ticket news to report next time, either on Iran perhaps Belarus other areas but for now that's that's what we're covering today so before we get started Tim any any thoughts
1: so yeah I, I when we get to the last item it, it really is uh, shocking how mad the u.s China China um, economic uh, Security Commission is about the delay in the emerging and foundational technologies um, activities under Ecra I, I think people if you're if you wait for one thing from this podcast you really ought to you really ought to, you know, wait for that. Just just listen to that by
0: itself. Yeah, it's just, that's a fire. That's going to be a fire segment. Just it really, is. it's just, yeah, just stay tuned for that one to tease To tease our final lightning round There's segment. So be
1: anger, murder, mayhem. <laughs> you, you, you
0: won't believe it chaos and all the rest of it okay without further ado let's jump in then to perhaps a more mundane topic which is publicly traded securities of chinese military companies so topic number one this is obviously a topic that we have talked about a lot in the last six plus months uh since the release of executive order 13959 uh and part of it obviously was just the perhaps unorthodox way that that program was set up and that the executive order was issued Uh, the guidance that was issued or lack of guidance that was issued as to the scope of that and uh, questions that were raised in the trade nerd community and beyond. Uh, And then, of course, recently, a lot of focus that we have been giving is relating to the companies that have been challenging uh, their DOD listings under the uh, Section 1237 of the fiscal year 1999 NDAA, which, of course, has been um, give an effect under one, three, nine, five, nine. Well, to some degree that is all over. Uh, the, this is, I saw a quote somewhere and I'm, I'm, I apologize. I won't be attributing this to whomever it was, but somebody said, finally, they've cleaned up the mess that was created by the Trump administration and creating this program, a program that has solid policy-based foundations, but In the way it was put together and the way it was rolled out and the way it was administered, it was a mess. And I think if you've listened to any of the podcasts that we've done on this topic in the past six to eight months, you would know that we agree with that premise and that this was a sort of square peg in a round hole to try to create a program from this you know, based essentially on this DoD listing process, which was, as we now know, no process at all uh, from the lawsuits. And so that has now all gone away. So for those who have not seen this uh, last week and today, uh, the new executive order 14032 is the new executive order, is being published in the Federal Register. Um, it it has now essentially supplanted in, in its entirety 13959 relating to um, the way that sanctions are, are going to be imposed and restrictions are going to be imposed with respect to U.S. persons' ability to Uh, buy and sell the securities of these Chinese military companies. And so I think I'm going to hit on a couple of big picture thoughts here, and I'm going to turn to Tim. More than anything, in addition to kind of hitting the restart button on this whole program, which is something that we talked about in the waning days of the Trump administration and the early days of the Biden administration, this is a program where we thought, hmm, they could really, they may get rid of this altogether. They may hit a, you know, do a reset. They have now done a reset. Finally, I think is fair to say, and quite frankly, along with that, tellingly, I, I just want to focus on this for one second. They have really, they have really rebranded the program. Quite frankly, and they, I think this is very telling. So the old program, the old executive order that was issued in November 2020, 13959, it was titled "Addressing the Threat from Securities Investments that Finance Communist Chinese Military Companies," and of course, that's the that's the nomenclature that's used under for the DoD. Listing process. The new executive order, which is again is just was is dated June 3rd, so just end of last week, addressing the threat from securities investments that finance certain companies of the People's Republic of China. If if you need to just look at any two things and understand the approach, the 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 desire to take a slightly more nuanced, less bombastic approach to these types of things. Just the retitling of these executive orders, I think, tells you just about everything you need to know about the way that the Biden administration and the Biden era OFAC is going about doing this. And what we now have with 14032, Executive Order 14032, is a much more traditional. It is still somewhat unorthodox because it is very narrow in what it is targeting, but it is a much more traditional executive order to stand up an OFAC program and to support an OFAC program. And there's now essentially so the dod listing process that is out all of that is gone that is no longer a basis to be um subject to to this program and to be subject to this executive order now that's not to say that some of the companies that are identified on that list do not carry over and are not still covered here they are but is entirely separate process and the new 14032 uh it, it focuses on instead uh companies that operate or have operated in the defense and related material sector or the surveillance technology sector of the PRC. Those are two, those are the two kind of tent poles of the pro, of the of this program now. And and notably, of course, surveillance technology, that is um, that is something that is key to um, what's going on in Xinjiang, what's going on with the Uyghurs and the other ethnic minorities. Um, so that is has been a key underpinning of entity listings and other us sanctions that are targeting china this this kind of carries that through that thread which makes all the sense in the world from a policy perspective but those are now the key tent poles here the the companies that are subject to to this executive order they've it's all been refreshed it's a new annex that was just issued in connection with this there are some holdovers certainly from the old list um, but then there are a lot of companies that are now gone that have been jettisoned because they don't they don't meet the definition, this new categorization or definition. Um, and again, the DOD listing process is not any is no longer a basis to be subject to this executive order. So that's very important. And and the, the last thing that I would say um, before I throw it over to Tim. So there's a few there are a few other aspects of this that we're going to get to. I think one is 50 percent rule doesn't apply here. The FAQs that have now come out, I think, are very clear in showing that this is meant to be very narrow. U.S. persons can still have a lot to do with even the trading and investment management of these securities, as long as they are not the beneficial owners, as as long as they are not, it is not otherwise violative for the persons who are buying or selling these these equities to be um, that they're not U.S. persons. That is now, I think, been clarified by some of the FAQs. There's also some interesting FAQs in terms of what's required in terms of due diligence and other steps that parties need to take to make sure that they're compliant with this. So that at a high level, I think, summarizes this. So this is, again, we view this as a reset, total reset on this program, rebranding, reset, new guidance, new hopefully new clarity into what it is covering there's been a lot made about the surveillance technology angle that that is an expansion here and that is true technically that there perhaps is an expansion but at the same time CCMCs as defined under the DOD language and under the statute from 1999 was so broad as we know from the lawsuits that have challenged it that it really could have covered anything and now I think we're we're now dealing in a in a much more tailored fashion to a program and a targeted a target set that is much more um, similar to what we see in many other OFAC programs. And again, the scope of this, it's clear, it is meant to be very narrow at the end of the day in terms of what this restricts. This is in, there's a new list that goes along with this, which is the non SDN Chinese military industrial complex companies list, the NSCMIC list. OFAC There's just a proliferation of new lists that are going around these days. And so that is now in place. And so, you know that is going to be the list where you find the companies, and they have to be exact matches. There's no more of this close matching um, nonsense that we were all having to live through under the old regime. So, anyway, I'm going to stop there. There's a lot there. We're not going to cover all aspects of this. It's pretty broad. We're going to be putting, we're going to be writing on this. A lot of people are writing on this. But let me just throw it to Tim to get his reactions, and then we'll kind of get into it from there.
1: No, I, I mean I think you mostly covered it, Brian. I, just a few thoughts. I mean, first is the the clown show is over. Um, DoD is now back out of the listing business, and and thank God because they just had no idea what they were doing, and it was creating a lot of um, confusion and and you know unnecessary expense for companies that were trying to comply with these with these provisions. Um, I, I agree that the the focus is in some ways more narrow because it is just the defense or related material sector, and that is much more focused than this list. I mean, part of the problem with that executive order, the one three nine five nine, is that it brought in a list that was created first of all with. A 20-year gap, but second of all, for an entirely different purpose. I mean, the standard on that list was broad, so it was you know owned, controlled by, or affiliated with a company. But then it was a company, a Chinese communist military company that was doing business in the United States, which really had nothing to do with what this executive order, e- even in November, purported to be getting at. That is, what what it were purported to be getting at was Chinese military, um, civilian military fusion whereas it was not communist companies operating in the United States which is what the which is what the old de- defense uh, authorization order did so it was it had a list that was created for an entirely different purpose and it just kind of sought to have the department of defense do that list and then kind of hijack it for a different purpose which was just a dumb way to set things up it, this is now set up in a much more traditional um, way that most OFAC programs are set up, you have the Secretary of Treasury that is OFAC doing the designation. They have a you know a, a category of behavior that gets you designated, not something that deals with doing business in the United States. It does expand to the surveillance technology sector. I I, I think that's understandable. It do, it is an entirely different policy basis than the the civil. Uh, the civil military fusion, I think it's much more human rights based, but I but it, it makes sense. I mean, it, so it's, but it, but whether it makes sense or not, it's definable. And so you can kind of figure out which companies would be in the crosshairs of that in a way that the old list, you know, other than the fact that they were in China, there really wasn't that, you know, you really didn't know who was subject to designation and who wasn't because the, the level of connection to the military was so small in some of these companies that, um, it re- really was not easy to figure out the other thing that is is you know you you mentioned it quickly Brian and and that is the old list you know part of the reason that they they required or that they allowed for close matches is the defense department did a really crummy job of defining the companies who were there these companies are defined much more precisely and and that, actually means that I, I went and counted this morning. The, the new list is longer, but I think mm-hmm. that's in part because, in part because it actually lists the subsidiaries for companies like say, for example, Huawei that are now subject to this restriction as opposed to the old list that just said Huawei. But I mean, Huawei has hundreds of subsidiaries. And so you you really didn't know from just saying Huawei what company they were talking about and whether it was all the subsidiaries, the the, the corporate headquarters, what have you, and, and so this one goes through with Huawei, it goes through with Avic, and some of the other Chinese companies that have subsidiaries, and lists precisely all those subsidiaries. So there are more, um, but there are also a lot fewer. I mean, all of the companies that we've talked about in the last few podcasts who had litigated against um, against the government in connection with this program. So go in and show me and
0: um, uh, Lukong. Lukong.
1: Yeah, Lucon. They they are all off the list now. And in fact, I went back and looked, and you know, there, the the Defense Department did that list in five tranches, starting in June of 2020. The last tranche was you know right before the end of the Trump administration in in January, in, in January 2021. That last tranche is entirely off the list. So every company that was designated in January 2021 is no longer on the um, on the list and is not subject to these prohibitions. I, in December, it looked like it was about 50-50. And most of the companies before that are on the list in some form. You know, they they, they now have a much more precise de- designation. The subsidiaries are there. But um, it's not that different. But but it's clear that there is a much more precise focus on, on who's listed and why they're listed and, and precisely like who's subject to sanctions and what they are. You know, I guess the last thing that I would say is, in terms of, you know, supplanting the prior order, I mean, there's a new effective date. I mean, now none of this stuff happens until August. Um, it all goes into effect in August. And then the divestment is one year from the date of the order. So it's, you know, June of, of 2022. And so it is like a brand new order, although as a, as a technical matter, it, it, it basically amended 13959 um, nine by, by basically su- kill. By, by
0: supersede, yeah, by superseding right. all of its substantive provisions, yeah, exactly, exactly. and repl- and replacing them, and replacing, yeah, that them. that's exactly right. So the for our housekeeping purposes, it's 60 days out from the issuance date. So as Tim said, it's early August now is the new date when all of this will go into effect with respect to the 59 or so companies that were on that were initially listed here as part of this new annex, and then it's a one-year divestment period thereafter, and that would be the case for any companies that are added subsequently to the um nscm ic list as well it'd be a 60 day initial window and then a year for divestment um just a couple yeah so agree completely and i think that as we know as well um you know there was just so much confusion around this in terms of what was this going to mean and we and as we know one of the big and quite frankly i think under the initial uh, the w- way this was initially conceived and rolled out late last year, we say that we talk about this a lot. Where there's perhaps a, um, we know that there is going to be, and the and OFAC knows, and the U.S. government knows that there is going to be over compliance, perhaps, when there is amb- when there is strategic ambiguity kind of built in. I would say that this is probably was a result of not so strategic ambiguity, just general ambiguity and kind of sloppiness that created a lot of problems here with the original executive order and program. But we do know that there were plenty of people who were taking the the view, especially in financial institutions in the US and abroad, that we're not gonna have anything to do with these entities and we're not gonna, and so that was gonna create massive, that was creating and was going to create in the future massive problems. Here, there are FAQs that make clear that the nature of the restrictions with respect to these listed entities is very narrow. It is truly very narrow, and even U.S. persons have a lot that they can do, and that has been further clarified in this latest round of FAQs, even beyond the old FAQs that were in place previously. And and of and of course they they also have the the helpful FAQ at the end, which is, you know, does this prohibit US persons from engaging in all activities with companies on the NSCMIC list? And it just says point blank, no, Um, you know, these are meant to be solely regarding purchases and sales of publicly traded securities of those entities, right? And, And so I think that hopefully this is going to help. Now, again, not all aspects are fully clarified, but there is, I think, more clarity here, certainly, than what we were um, operating under previously. I did want to flag, and I want to give Tim credit for this, for sort of pointing this out in the minutes right after this was released, um, this ish, this uh, FAQ 901, which I would call everyone's attention to, which is, it basically, it, it, it asks the question... Um, what level of due diligence must us persons including market intermediaries and other participants undertake to assess whether an underlying purchase or sale is prohibited under eo 13959 as amended which is which is how they're referring to eo 14032 and they they basically say that for purposes of assessing whether it's permissible and include in including financial institutions in 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 doing this they may rely upon the information available to them in the ordinary course of business. Now, that struck us as being pretty remarkable because hardly ever is it the case that OFAC or any other U.S. regulator will say you don't need to go above and beyond to do additional or uh, you know extraordinary levels of due diligence to um, to satisfy yourself that you're going to be compliant here. But here, in the ordinary course of business, that is we think that's pretty telling that that is what that 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 is the message in FAQ 901. And so let me let me toss it to Tim to sort of dissect that just a little bit here, maybe as a final point before we move on. But but that jumped out at us as as being pretty notable.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess two quick thoughts on that. I mean, the first is that, um, that I do think that they are trying to dial this program down a little bit by kind of, by reining it in. So, you know, making the standards more intelligible um, doing the listing in a way that is both, you know, more precise in terms of who's listed, but it also, uh, I suspect that if anybody sues this, they're going to see very different designation memos than uh, came out in the, in the um, Xiaomi or the the Lukon case. And so, so on that Issue, I, I think that that you know, you you do have both the new administration, but also OFAC kind of dialing this program down a bit. Although for what it does, it still does you know for the companies that are listed, it still does precisely the same thing. And and you know, I I all of what we've said by we are not um, trying to talk about how this program is you know great. But it's way better than what existed previously. I guess that's the message that I would like to to leave with: is that we're not taught, we're not saying that you know OFAC always gets it right, or that um, that that this program serves a, a much more justifiable policy basis. I mean, I, I do think that there is some justification in the policy, but um, but there are there, there I'm I'm sure that as time goes on and we live with this program, we will see its flaws in the same way that we see you know, the flaws in some of the other programs, but the, but, but the, the 13959 was remarkable in just its complete absence of uh, the sort of structure that we've seen in some of the other sanctions programs. And again, even though those have their own flaws, they're so far superior to what we've seen that it probably sounds like we're talking about how great this new order is, when in fact all we're saying is it's just a new sanctions program now and not kind of the, the clown show that existed previously.
0: Yeah, I'll just I'll just sort of finish with two quick points. One to build on what Tim just said, which is now I think we have a program that's much more scalpel than blunt force instrument, which is what we had before, originally. And, and I think that that is probably a relief to anybody involved, even even quite frankly, companies that are on this list. Uh, and number two, I do think that by kind of refocusing and reframing the program. Uh, and continuing to acknowledge the importance from a policy standpoint to, you know, for again, from the U S perspective to cut off these certain Chinese companies from, uh, the capital markets in perhaps at least in some, in some certain respects, or at least U S contributions to these, to their, their capital markets efforts or their debt offerings, uh, that they're. You know, looking at military-civil fusion, looking at surveillance technology, two unquestionably important uh, policy, uh, you know, issues from the U.S. perspective. It is this is more targeted, and again, I think just much more precise. Time will tell, sort of how effective this may be, but at least it's it's now trying to be a more tailored solution. Certainly. I think the flip side of that or the or the important additional point of that or final point of that, which we haven't really talked about yet, is certainly some of the rhetoric that I've seen come out of China or China watchers on this suggests that, of course, they're still unhappy about this, and they say the u s. should get rid of the whole list and this is a sham and you know, et cetera, et cetera. But the sense is, I think that this is maybe a slight ratcheting down again, just from what I read at the outset of the name of the executive order itself, right? The the rhetoric is dialed down a little bit. It's just dialed down a little bit. And so from where we were in Alaska a couple months ago and where we were in November, certainly when 13959 was released, I think this at least invites perhaps the opportunity for dialogue with the Chinese on this at some point. Now, I'm not saying that's that's imminent and I'm not saying that they're necessarily, wherever the US and China are ever gonna see eye to eye on this, you you know, uh, at the end of the day. But I do think that this is a, again, as we have talked about a lot, this administration's perhaps preference for diplomatic solutions or for sanctions being sort of one piece of a solution, not the whole solution. This, I think, is is in dialogue with that. And it is in dialogue with that way of thinking about these types of problems and perhaps a telegraphing of what, what we may see three months, six months, a year from now, if there is actual substantive discussion with the Chinese about some of these issues.
1: Well, I, I mean, I think that's a great segue. I mean, so, you know, to speak of sanctions as one piece of the puzzle, um, that certainly is, is really what has happened in China. And I think it was also what was going on, um, on June 3rd when the president came out with his, uh, memorandum, uh, and, and we're switching now to the next segment. His memorandum on establishing corruption as a core United States interest. I mean that that is, uh, you know, it, it it is a new initiative in some sense for the U.S. to be on to to be the leader in anti-corruption. But it is obviously an old core interest. I mean, the U.S. and in, in the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act really led the way on anti-corruption for many many years. Um, the Biden administration in this new order has really sought to. Uh, take on anti-corruption as a as a key focus of the of the administration and sanctions is one piece of that. Uh, it talks about uh, an initiative among many many different agencies, but um, the U.S. since 2017 has had sanctions uh, called the Global Magnitsky Act sanctions that uh, that we have used to sanction corrupt actors or to to sanction actors um, on the world stage who violate human rights. And, um, you know, in fact, the day before this memorandum came out, the U.S. Uh, put using the, the, the GLOMAG sanctions powers uh, put 65 Bulgarian officials and companies onto the SDN list under the, the Global Magnitsky uh Anti-corruption sanctions talked about the way that corruption had affected Bulgaria. It was kind of a, it was a, it was a sign that this this memorandum was coming, and and um, so it was, it's a big deal. I mean, it's not it, it's not a huge deal in the sense that the U.S. has always been a leader on this, but it is kind of a a, a message that the U.S. is is back in this game, as was the the designation in Bulgaria, and I think we'll probably see quite a bit more of this, my guess is that it will be in, in you know, in Russia and the former Soviet Union countries will be a, a big focus of this.
0: Yeah. For those who aren't, who didn't catch this when it came out last week, um, there was a memorandum on establishing the fight against corruption as a core U.S. national security interest that was issued on June 3rd, as Tim said. As a practical matter, all that really does for the time being is establishes a White House led interagency review process to dig into how uh, the u.s could perhaps better fight uh, anti-corruption around the globe and that's uh sharing resources you know leveraging existing relationships you know aml controls sanctions tools uh building capacity training resource enhancement All those kinds of things, right? So that's this is a broad strokes, very broad strokes memorandum, and it lays out this interagency process that's going to play out over the course of the next six plus months and result in a report to the president. So this is not even going to be to Congress. It's not going to, you know this is all happening behind the scenes. It's an, a purely interagency process. Um, you know, Back in my day uh, at Justice, I participated in a number of these because the interagency process now under Biden looks a lot more like it did under Obama again. And so this is, I know there'll be a lot of people in, in closed rooms with no cell phones nearby, having these discussions over the course of the next several months, trying to hash out what this should all look like uh, and what they want to recommend to the president. So. In terms of immediate impact there's not much there's just a as a symbolic matter this is a big deal and it's a big deal because it's sort of saying as tim said the us is trying to again regain some leadership here in anti-corruption and is going to be taking a hard look at this and is going to perhaps be putting their money where their mouth is to to really bulk up resources and to increase collaboration cooperation both domestically and internationally, it looks like, in this area. And as we know, and as we talk about a lot in the sanctions space, of course, as Tim alluded to, uh, anti-corruption is a key underpinning of many, many different programs that the U.S. is, that are very active, uh, that OFAC administers. And so we would, I think, anticipate that this is uh, just a further reinforcing of that and the, as Tim said that action in Bulgaria, which was touted as the largest single day um action or set of designations under the, Magnits- the Global the Magnitsky Act since it was um implemented, you know was is very clearly was in concert, and the language was really mirroring what was in the the presidential memorandum, and so I think that was signaling that where there may be more of that to come. I think just as a sort of big picture item that I'll sort of throw out there as maybe one last point to consider, you know from in terms of how um, you know the various stakeholders who are most involved, from a, again, we're just thinking about this from a sanctions perspective. This is obviously much broader than that. This is going to implicate many different um, stakeholders across the government. But, but quite frankly, when you're thinking about um, anti-corruption and when you're thinking about AML and when you think about sanctions and you're thinking about enforcement, the two key agencies on the U.S. side from that perspective are going to be Treasury and Justice. And so I think in terms of how those agencies have perhaps a meeting of the minds and think about how they're going to perhaps better work together, leverage resources, share information, coordinate on investigations, coordinate on enforcement actions you know, that is much easier said than done. So how that comes together and whether this directive is kind of a jumping off point for a new era there, there are plenty of people who are signaling and saying this is going to be a brand new day and a brand new era. And that may very well be true, but there's a lot of work to be done to get there. Nevertheless, I think at least putting a stick in the ground here and pointing in that direction, I think is a big deal. And then time will sort of tell how those things come together in particular, as I said, with respect to how Treasury and Justice work together uh, on these issues going forward. So I'll just sort of leave that uh, as a final thought and, and toss to Tim, perhaps for some final musings on this.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, look, whether it, this is definitely a, a big deal and the administration wants this to wants this to to. Um, you know, kickoff and anti-corruption push from the United States. And I think that that's that's great and it'll be interesting to watch and the level of coordination will be interesting to watch. I mean, I do hearken back to export control reform when there was a discussion of, of, I can't remember the name of the agency, you might remember it, Brian, Um, the one that was supposed to coordinate all of the activity among the various, um, you know, actors in the sanctions context and export context. E2C2. E2C2. I knew it was like something from Star Wars. I mean, <laughs> like, and it, it might as well have been from Star Wars for all of the the use that it's gotten. I mean, it really has not, it was, you know, touted as leading to a new level of cooperation among the agencies. And, and I, I have to be, you know, frank from the outside, maybe it's going on, but from the outside, you just don't, it doesn't seem like it.
0: I I can confess that I sat through some E2C2 meetings and I can't say that I was overwhelmed by how effective the coordination process was so that's just that's just my two cents no shots at anybody the good folks trying to make that work but you know that's just my and that was a long time ago but still yeah your point is well taken your point it's hard to
1: it's hard for government agencies to coordinate because everybody kind of has their turf and they you know think that a different agency is not going to do things as well as they're going to do it and so correct you 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 do see that, and so I I'm not skeptical of this because I just just getting off the ground, maybe it'll work out. But I always you know hearken back to E2C2 when I when I think about coordination. I, and, yeah, I
0: will and I will say that yeah, when there's top down support for something like this, as clearly there is here from the the very top of government, uh, you know, agencies have to play nice, kind of ultimately, right? There's just there's only so much game playing you can do when. Uh, the, the people at the at the top calling the shots are are really invested in trying to make this work, and it, I my, our sense is that that is the case here. So, you know, time will tell as this as this agency this interagency review process proceeds, and as as a report gets written, and as recommendations get rolled out, I'm sure that there will be more public facing pronouncements on this to to kind of feature this as as we go forward. But for now, that was a big announcement last week, and and something that we will. Perhaps not come back to anytime soon, but certainly be keeping our eye on, and and could could have some big ripple effects uh, down the road. So just something for folks to be aware of. So with that, let's let's pivot to our last sort of full topic for the episode, which is uh, Burma. And last week, the Burma sanctions regulations were uh, released, which is uh, pretty prompt as these things go, considering that the uh, the new executive order was only one four oh one four was only released in February, and here we are in early June, and there's already a full set of sanctions regulations that are released. And I we note that really, there's nothing remarkable whatsoever about these sanctions regulations. They are pretty much cookie cutter, just like you would imagine, in just about all other OFAC programs. Uh, but I think we wanted to use this as an, so A, to flag that for people who weren't aware of that, but B, to use this as a bit of a check-in uh, on the Burma program generally, because as people are, well aware around the world, things are not getting better in Burma, or Myanmar. They're getting worse, a lot worse, and have been over the course of the last few months. And in, in fact, there were a couple of issues that uh, kind of registered on the U.S. side of things that that we took note of. And I think that the the big question for me and for us, I think, is what what will happen here? What could happen here going forward? Could we be in a situation where uh, the you know the military leadership of Of Burma Myanmar is going to force the US's hand perhaps to you know could we be in a situation where at some point we could see a full-on embargo with respect to Burma uh, or are we going to continue to kind of incrementally see ratcheting up over time and there were sort of I think there are two interesting points here number one is there was a there was a story that got a wide coverage last week uh, regarding an American journalist who had been in um had been in Burma for quite some time. His name is uh, Danny Fenster, and he was apparently traveling or trying to travel home to the U.S. to visit his family, and he was detained at the airport uh, in Burma and was not allowed to leave and is now apparently being held incommunicado. And so this has now flared up to be a bit of a um, you know cause celebre with respect to the, uh, the journalism community and also the human rights community, understandably so. And I think there there is apparently there there is one other US journalist that has been held or is being held at at the moment but this one uh at least has registered I think a bit more broadly and you know this is the type of activity that we have seen obviously in Iran and other places where The harshest sanctions are imposed by the U.S. in part because of this type of activity. And so it it begs the question whether we have now entered we're now sort of through the looking glass in Burma and we're potentially heading towards something like that in terms of U.S. response. That's one that's one piece. The second piece is in terms of what that broader response may be. And perhaps whether it could ever, we could ever see something from Congress that would be aiming to get behind a broader response or a more aggressive response with respect to Burma, like we have seen with respect to Hong Kong, like we've seen with respect to Russia. Oddly enough, I think this has now become a bit of a, almost a partisan issue to some degree, in part because, uh, you know, there there are those at least uh, that are sort of in the, um, that are, you know, Trump uh, adherents and that are that are um, big supporters of some of the just say uh, it
1: Brian it's QAnon just say <laughs> it
0: <laughs> there is there was a there was a report widely circulated that Trump's original national security advisor Michael Flynn was essentially uh, it went on the record at a QAnon conference saying that the U.S. should think about a military coup just like we've seen in Burma uh, to put Trump back in power essentially. And so that leads one to beg the question whether or not, uh, given that we're not going to in all likelihood see a bipartisan review of the, um, the capital riots and the insurrection on January 6th, in part because uh, there, are, there are certain segments of the U.S. Congress on the Republican side that are fearful of alienating that, uh, that contingent. And I would, I would venture to guess that we would see a similar uh, thinking here, that they would not want to get behind Harsher sanctions on Burma because they would not want to alienate those who think that they, the Burmese uh, military have it have it right, and that they stepped in when um, the the democratically elected leadership in in Myanmar was um, was installed or staying in power because of uh, a rigged election. So it is sad that we are still talking about this, but I think it is worth discussing. And and I'll just throw it to Tim to sort of really just to try to gauge given those dynamics, one of which would seem to, you know, clearly, uh, be, a a point of outrage for most in the U S who would want to do more with respect to Burma. And then the perhaps counterbalancing that, uh, in, in terms of what may actually happen here, what do we expect with respect to Burma? What do we expect as next steps on the U S side, uh, given where we are right now?
1: So I really hope that, that bipartisan consensus against military coups, um, holds in the United States. Although I I saw the video in in which uh, Mr. Flynn was asked, or General Flynn was asked about the coup in in Myanmar and and whether or not that could or should happen here and said that it should happen here. I hope that that is, you know, isolated to to avowed QAnon supporters and doesn't spread further than that. I, I will say what I'm watching is, you know, June 14th, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's trial starts. And a couple of thoughts about that. I mean, if they really do go on with the trial, um, it, it really, I think that that could inflame public opinion in the way that you're talking about with the American journalist who's also been kidnapped by the by the coup leaders. And so so I think that that's another point to watch. Weird fact, and fact, that could make us hopeful is that um my understanding is that Mitch McConnell is actually very tight with Aung San Song Kyi. I mean, I if you google it there's a there's a lot of news reports about how they have some sort of special relationship and she's actually been to Kentucky with Mitch McConnell. And so so I I I'm hopeful that maybe that will be a lever for, you know, bipartisan support for for, you know, bipartisan resistance to government's taking power by force over democratically elected governments, but, but we shall see because it is crazy times here. And, and I, I'm hopeful that, you know, democratic norms will hold, but I've been wrong before.
0: Yeah. And I, and I just don't, I think that the short answer is we just don't know. There hasn't been a lot of seeming momentum or stomach for this at the congressional level. It's all been white house and, uh, agency driven, uh, and that, looks like the way it will stay for the time being, but we shall see. There could be a new executive order. There could be other steps that are taken. I think at Tim's point, if the trial goes forward, there'll certainly be more sanctions levied against certain persons that are involved in that. But beyond that, we don't know. Uh, So yeah, we're kind of at a, we're kind of at a strange inflection point perhaps, or pivot point with respect to Burma. And it'll be interesting to see where we, where we go next. So we just, we wanted to spend a few minutes just kind of quickly checking in on that because Um, there's an odd brew of circumstances that are swirling around this and which way we go from here is, is a little hard to tell.
1: Yeah. And, and when I was talking about that article, I was referring to a a political article from April about Mitch McConnell tending his legacy 8,000 miles away and and all of the ties that he has to Myanmar, which I I had never heard of before that article, but we'll see if maybe, maybe that can be the thread that, that saves us and, and not this, um, crazy love for military coups
0: yeah we shall see so with that let's uh let's pause for our favorite sound effect and we'll jump into the lightning round and we are as as i said at the outset we are obligated to check in with jcpoa 2.0 or uh and, and I'll throw it to Tim for that. Do we think we're in trouble here? Do we think that there is going to be a JCPOA 2.0 or do we think we're still on track? What, what do you, what, what's the latest, Tim?
1: It, it depends on who you ask. <laughs> so so if you ask the, the head of the European delegation, uh, he apparently thinks that the next round of negotiations will produce a JCPOA 2.0 agreement. Um, the Iranians in the U.S. seem to be more Uh, cautious in that regard, particularly the U.S. I mean, they, they, they were asked the same question and said that they're going back for the next round of negotiations, and it's complicated, and they expect there'll be many more. So not pessimistic in the sense that it does seem to suggest that the U.S. believes that there will be an agreement, but they don't think that it's going to come nearly so soon. From the Iranian side, you know, I think the last Podcast, we talked about how optimistic the Iranians had been about this, and and the the, the statements coming out of Tehran seem to mostly indicate that the that everything was done except for the the signing ceremony. And now I, the 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 comments that I'm reading are much more cautious in terms of whether the Iranians think this will be done immediately or not. But the Europeans sure th- seem to think that this is a a done deal. But no, and no real news to report about any details. In you know, we've we've outlined kind of the dynamic in terms of lifting sanctions and the nuclear program and the timing and that sort of thing. Um, I, I haven't seen any change in, in what I've read. It's just the negotiations are still going on and it looks like they are going to be successful, but it's not clear when.
0: Yeah, I would say that de- definitely reading between the lines here, the, the comments are a bit more measured. I think they're just naturally have progressed to a point where a, it's difficult to get a deal done under any circumstances, but certainly difficult to do when these are indirect talks, and there's a game of telephone and an aspect of that to everything that's being passed back and forth between the two sides. So that is, I think, heightening the level of difficulty here. And then, as we have talked about at length, these are just very difficult things to to see eye to eye on and to coordinate on. The the original deal took, you know, months, years to to coordinate and to to uh, get lined up and there's just no there's just no getting around that I, I think that whatever the early stage optimism was I think we've now hit the we're a bit in the weeds stage and getting everybody to sign off on this and respective um, you know government heads to sign off on this is just gonna be tricky at this point I don't I don't think there's gonna be any I don't think there's gonna be any easy answers and I do think that it's it's likely that we could you know we're about to have round six this week. This is June 7th, uh, of indirect talks. And, you know, we could, we could be still talking about this when we're up to, you know, round 12 in, you know, three or four months, who knows. But, um, you know, I think it's obviously this is sufficiently important. We're going to continue to keep close tabs on it. Felt like we'll, we'll probably, you'll probably get at least a quick check in on, on this. If you don't hear about it, uh, at some point in the future, it's, um, uh, then perhaps everybody's going off on summer holiday but uh otherwise I think it's uh it's it's a sure bet we're going to be continuing to circle back to this time and again until we until there's it's either dead or we have a new deal. Well,
1: it's it's definitely the biggest thing happening in the sanctions world. I mean, it's happening slowly, but you know, it's happening unlike Cuba and and perhaps Venezuela, but certainly Cuba. I mean, we were reading reports this week that the, the Biden administration has no interest in redoing the, the Obama era um, loosening of the, the Cuba, certainly travel regs. And that is something that, you know, we've thought and, and it has now been reported. And it just doesn't seem like there's any activity going on in Cuba. But in Iran, things are happening. And depending upon who you listen to, they're either happening tomorrow or they're happening in a month. But they're, they're definitely happening.
0: Yep, agreed. So we'll keep a close watch. But for now, just a quick check in on that. Let us pivot to uh, topic number two in the lightning round, which is kind of a fascinating one, and was spurred by a uh, Wall Street Journal article that uh, came out just a few days ago. In, in the wake of the Israel-Palestine clash and the sort of tenuous ceasefire that uh, was just reached uh, not that long ago, uh, there was a report in the Wall Street Journal that Hamas uh, has seen an uptick in Bitcoin donations to to the cause. And for those who don't know, uh, Hamas is both a, an FTO, a foreign terrorist organization, and an SDGT, especially designated global terrorist, under US sanctions, uh, subject to US sanctions, and has been for many, many, many years. And agency,
1: a, agency coordination. You've got. And, a, and as a. FTO. And as a
0: that's, that's right. FTO and, a, and SDGT. That's right. And as a so as a practical matter, that makes them off limits to U.S. persons, certainly as a, as a block party, but also any aid to Hamas, any material support to Hamas potentially makes that party subject to sanctions themselves. So, uh, you know, really playing with fire when you're um, – and, and interesting that the sourcing of this story comes – and so – by having this feature in the Wall Street Journal, it's essentially putting on on notice to the entire world that there's a massive sanctions evasion um, effort going on to obtain Bitcoin to finance the military and other operations of Hamas. Again, none of this is surprising. It's well known that cryptocurrencies are used to evade sanctions and are used to finance these types of organizations. But the fact that a Hamas official apparently would be willing to go on the record anonymously, but still on the record uh, for this type of story is pretty noteworthy. And I think the only the only thing that we really wanted to kind of speculate on or flag was uh, whether or not we think that there is going to be increased scrutiny now from U.S. authorities in particular, I mean, they are subject to EU sanctions and U.N. sanctions, not just in the U.S., but I think the U.S. sanctions are probably the most um, restrictive and the most notable in terms of uh, regulating behavior on the part of parties around the world who may or may not be having direct or indirect dealings with Hamas. And so I guess the question would be whether we think that uh, whether DOJ or OFAC or uh, any other enforcers in the U.S. or outside the U.S. might be uh, might have a fire lit under them to perhaps do some additional digging here uh, to, to try to smoke out who, who it is that's, uh, you know, who, coming to the aid of Hamas by sending Bitcoin. So um, just kind of, a fa- again, kind of a fascinating kind of confluence of events that are, that are happening here to, to sort of highlight this issue. So I'll throw it to Tim for any quick thoughts on that.
1: OK, first, let me be very clear. OFAC if you're listening, DOJ, if you're listening, I am not trying to facilitate, um, (laughs) any sort of material support to Hamas, but pro tip, uh, if you are going to be (laughs) evading sanctions, you should not make anonymous quotes in the newspaper explaining how you're getting financed.
0: Especially in, especially in the premier financial (laughs) journal, uh, in the world. Right. (laughs) That that is read
1: daily by us enforcers. Right. So, so, um, so that would be my, my first thought, was that that was probably a, a poor choice um, by whomever gave that quote to give that quote. But second, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that that, that will um, increase some scrutiny. I, I guess the other thought that I have is that it, that region of the world is so complicated for, for many, many reasons. It, 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 and sanctions is one of them. So you have Hamas, which is an FTO. Hamas is a specially designated global terrorists Hamas is also the de facto government de facto government of, of the Gaza Strip and so anybody who deals with the Gaza Strip has to deal with uh, you know a, 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 an entity that is on that list including NGOs including the Israeli government including, including the U.N. The yeah, the UN. Exactly. and so it is I mean the, the, everybody knows even you know before they made their announcement in The Wall Street Journal, that Hamas has money and that Hamas is getting financing. And I think there is some kind of um, implicit acknowledgement slash approval of that from U.S. enforcers to a certain level. But when you start combining Hamas with Bitcoin, which is already kind of the the bane of financial regulators existence, not only here, but like, you know, in ransomware, which we talked about last time, like that, that starts to ratchet things up where they, they can't, they, I think they feel like they can't ignore it anymore. Whereas normally I think they're, you know, to a certain level, they have to because it's a practical matter. You can only do so much of against the Gaza government.
0: Right. And I think when you're in the, when you're verging on territory where it's kind of the brazen thumbing of your nose by a foreign terrorist organization or notorious cyber criminals or whatever the category you fall into is, you're just inviting trouble and scrutiny. And so I think that's, again, time will tell what we see come out of this if there's if there's any increased crackdown enforcement, investigations, et cetera. But um, just kind of a fascinating little data point that we wanted to, to flag for everybody to keep an eye on uh, with respect to Hamas. So uh, with that, let's pivot. We're flying through this by our standards. We're at our final segment. As Tim teased at the outset, this one is really is what big. we hope you all stayed around for. If you've made it 50 plus minutes into the into the pod, this is really where the lightning in the lightning round is going to be seen. And that's ECRA. And let me toss it to Tim for that.
1: This isn't just smoke. There's also heat here. <laughs> um, so... So the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission was created in uh, the National Defense Authorization Act of 2001. I didn't know that before this week, but maybe some of you all who are listening did. And they're focused on U.S.-China economic security, economic and security um, uh, uh, issues, and and often related to China trade, um, to the China military embargo, and. What they're most focused on now is that the Export Control Reform Act of 2018 had some provisions that required the Commerce Department um, to uh, look at emerging and foundational technologies. Now, in part, that was so that the U.S. could place um, more precise considered export controls on, on those technologies. But before you do that, you have to figure out, well, what emerging and foundational technologies are out there that need this sort of, of regulation in part so that we could not only place our own export controls on those, but also try to uh, persuade our allies through the Wassenaar um, agreement to place you know similar export controls so that China could not get so easily these emerging and foundational technologies. Now, there's another part of this. When ECRA was passed, the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act which Ferma was also passed and had similar terms with respect to direct investment in the United States by Chinese investors. Um, there was some uh, those those. Definitional technologies were ones that uh, CFIUS was supposed to look more closely at in, in deciding whether or not to allow or to mitigate or to, to place conditions on uh, mostly Chinese investment in the United States. And so, you know, as you'll note, uh, export control reform was passed in 2018. The Commerce Department was supposed to define those terms. Uh, it still really hasn't defined those terms. We I think we've talked on the pod uh, at various times about some steps that commerce has taken toward defining those terms because it is kind of complicated, but it, it, as a practical matter, it hasn't finished yet. And, uh, and so the U S China economic and security review commission is up in arms. They are really, really, they are, they are teed off. And, um, they have now issued a report on June 1st. They issued a report. They called for Congress to, uh, Consider, they didn't say how, but presumably it's through some sort of oversight hearing. Um, the main question they wanted to look at is what has caused the more than two year delay in publishing lists of emerging and foundational technologies? Should Congress work with the Department of Commerce's inspector general to investigate the delay? And it's like, have you guys ever seen how government works? I mean, two years. <laughs> I mean, I have had license applications that are pending for six years. So, and I'm not defending that, it should be much faster than that. But but when you place in front of the Department of Commerce this really complicated issue of what are emerging and foundational technologies, define them and then decide what licensing requirements should apply to them. And I mean, Congress also instructed the Commerce Department, I think quite quite correctly, to consult with industry in trying to figure this out. So you've got to put together industry committees, you've got to have those committees meet, you've got to do a lot, there's a lot of work involved in this. And so from the, you know, two years of delay, like, okay. I mean, everybody hopes that it would go faster, but they're acting like the sky is going to fall because of the of, of the fact that it's taken two years for a congressional committee working with the Department of Commerce to, to, to resolve some really complicated issues that have really important consequences in terms of US trade and American jobs and that sort of thing. It's like, they don't seem to understand. It's not like somebody can just wave a magic wand and define emerging and foundational technologies and this will be all over. And like, that's the only thing that is. Prevented this from happening, and so I was amused, let's just say, by the the <laughs> the, the, the level of um, the level of shock shock to discover that there was two years in delay in publishing this list.
0: So here's here's what I'll say. So in case anyone was wondering, the fire in this segment was coming from Tim, not actually from the commission report. <laughs> um, the there, I do think though that the report is is fair in its criticism that we are now almost three years out from the passage of ECRa, and we don't have. We don't have any real progress on on emerging or foundational technologies. We have covered in the past the fact that these the advance notice of proposed rulemakings on those topics have been put out. Industry comment has been sought and obtained. There are working groups that are behind the scenes on this, uh, but nothing has come out yet. I think pointing out both the export control gap that 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 has still created, uh, especially with respect to China, and also the Enforcement and jurisdictional gap that that creates with respect to CFIUS and their ability to review items and transactions that that will implicate these technologies, which are as as yet undefined, is fair. And I think that it is fair to say, three years, come on, enough is enough. When are when are we going to get some clarity on this? I will say this: this is sort of my only takeaway uh, or thought on this, which is as we know under the Trump administration. I think some of these more complicated, you know, sort of, it it all fell on Commerce, although it's a much broader cast of characters behind the scenes that are working on this. Um, And we know Commerce obviously was very invested in dropping a lot of entity listings and and sort of doing things that were more outwardly focused on kind of an immediate enforcement and inflicting pain on China from that perspective, and perhaps not as much in the kind of eating your vegetables type of exercise that this really is, which is a roll-your-sleeves-up, labor-intensive, technical exercise. I suspect that under the current iteration of the Commerce Department, especially under the auspices of um, some of the people that we that have been rumored to be coming in at high levels of the Commerce Department, who really do have high high expertise in these areas and and I think will perhaps energize the effort here, I would expect that this will start to move along in the, in the coming months. And so, uh, you know, I, again, fair to kind of ding them for having sat on this for three years, but I do think that perhaps the log jam here or the delay here is close to being over once we get those, some of those people onboarded, which has not happened yet, but is, is presumably about to happen soon. So I, I will just sort of say that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, look, all kidding aside, I mean, government is a balance and you have, you know, on the one hand, It's not fair when you go too slowly. And and when I did mention some of those license applications, let me be very clear, those shouldn't be pending for that amount of time. And I've done everything I possibly can to to make that not happen because it's not fair. It's not fair to clients. It's actually not fair to the government either. And so things should move more quickly. On the other hand, you know, we started this podcast by talking about an order that was clearly put out way too fast without any thought. And it was a disaster. And so, you know, it is a balance between trying to go as fast as you can for fairness purposes, but as slow as you need to, to try and get things right. And I do think this was a hard question and it doesn't surprise me that it's taken this long. I agree I agree with you, Brian, that, you know, we're now on the outer edge of three year delays is, is pretty long and hopefully um, commerce is filled with technocrats who really wanna focus on issues like this as opposed to, you know, make press releases about, you know, entity list ent- entities or new big tariffs that, um, are much more complicated in practice and 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 not particularly uh, well thought out.
0: Yeah, and I, just one final thought on that is that I think in in building on what what I' mentioned, which is I, I think the new leadership at commerce will you know kind of turbocharge these efforts once they are onboarded. I do also expect that we may have more public facing kind of updating, or insight into what's going on. That's part of the problem here is that this is all very opaque. There's been very little in the way of any kind of uh, public uh, interface on this. So it's all being done behind the scenes. It took two years for them to even put out the, you know, first uh, ANPRM relating to, uh, relating to foundational technologies, which we talked about on the pod last summer. So, you know, that type of thing is, I think what gets people a little, Crazy and a little frustrated. And so I think I think and I'm suspecting that that will will probably be remedied to some degree, which will, I think, go a long way toward hopefully starting to ease this issue and get it and get it sort of ultimately resolved.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that at least. You know, from what I was hearing, there was a lot of tension inside the Commerce Department between the politicals and the um and the the you know, the the permanent the career staff, people. The career yeah. people yeah. in the la- in the last administration where you had a lot of pressure to do a lot of things quickly that were coming at the po- from the political level. And I think you had a lot of um career people who were worried about some of these programs kind of getting ruled out before they were ready. And my guess is that this that this process has fallen hostage to that, because this is the sort of process that you, I mean, it was going to be slow no matter what, because yes. it is very complicated. And the last thing you want to do is inject, you know, a, a huge amount of politics into the question of emerging and foundational technologies. And so I suspect that there was that sort of tension going on there, that that may be responsible for some of the delay.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. Okay, so in any event, we'll come back to that, I'm sure, at some point when we do get some more transparency or updates on that. But for now, we'll uh, we'll extinguish that fire that Tim lit on uh, ECRA and we will uh, we'll come back to it uh, another day. Uh, So that's all we have for this episode. Uh, That wraps us for now. We will be back again. This will be up sort of uh, we're recording June 7. This will be up late this week. Uh, We will be back again, as I said, toward the end of June after a three week break. Uh, And, you know, we could have could have some big ticket items to cover at that point. Like I said, we may have guests at that point to cover, uh, I think, some some China topics we haven't tackled in a while uh, that are a little outside of our day to day uh, uh, lives. And so we may bring some uh, some some honored guests on to talk about that. But in the meantime, we hope everybody uh, stays well and stays sanctions free and we will uh, we'll be back again soon.
1: Yeah. Have a good break, everybody. Stay sanctions free.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye.